You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, have you cut your own hair yet? No, it's just, it's growing out. I haven't even, I haven't shaved. I, uh, I'm just going for it. I'm going for that look. Remember in the movie, The Doors, Jim Morrison towards the end, when he's got the pot belly and the long hair and the beard, that's, that's sort of where I'm headed. So you're equating yourself to Jim Morrison. I like that. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, I feel I feel pretty clean though, and I feel pretty good. But I'm starting End to look. End of days, a Jim Morrison is maybe not the one you want to go with. But <laughs> otherwise, how are you holding up? I got to be honest. Like uh, we've gotten into bike riding. That seems to be like a nice way to social distance. If, if uh, with my oldest son, you ride bikes, and there's no cars, so you go in the middle of the road, pretty much. Uh, these are small streets where the cars wouldn't be going fast anyway. If a car comes, you dive into the sidewalk, and then you see a person, you dive into the street. And we've had fun doing that all weekend. And so we're being creative in how to get out. But I'm getting a little cabin fever. I can't wait for things to open back up. How about you? I can't wait for you to buy me a sushi lunch uh, at some point in the, you know, maybe this summer. That sounds good. But hey, Eric, I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, it's Jan Van Eck of Van Eck. What's been going on in his world? Well, Van Eck has come up uh, quite a bit, but also we've had an analyst and a reporter on the last two episodes since the crisis started and all the selling and everything. And, you know, it's nice to have an issue where somebody who's on the front lines dealing with client inquiries, trying to make sure the funds right, uh, run properly, really just to get his perspective on that. Now, the bonus is Van Eck is, uh, uh, has some ETFs that are just acutely connected to what we've been seeing with the Fed and the discounts and in uh, video games, uh, those stocks have been doing great. They have a video game ETF. We'll get into all of it. But uh, so there's a couple levels uh, of why I think he's the perfect guest for today. This time on Trillions, Jan Venek. Jan, welcome to Trillions. Thanks, Joel. Good to be here. So like Eric said here, we've talked to a reporter, uh, an analyst, but we haven't talked to somebody in your shoes on the issuer side. And especially with the Fed becoming such a player in ETFs of late, really fascinated about your perspective on, on, on that. Like, here's this whale coming into the market. Um, and what's your perspective on that as an issuer? Well, it's, it's, uh, it was really shocking what happened uh, Thursday before Easter, right? The, the huge uh, announcement by the Fed really rocked the credit markets. And you even saw some high-yield ETFs trading at premiums to their prior-day NAVs. So the way if you, and I haven't read all the language, but if you look at what they're trying to accomplish, it's tilted towards investment grade and everything. But I was saying today, earlier today, it's sort of like a really fat elephant trying to be super delicate and tiptoeing through the credit markets. It would be surprising if it was done well. Let me ask you about this, because uh, the Fed... In their announcement, we called the one on March 23rd the kitchen sink. That's when they went after investment-grade corporates. You saw LQD take off. This next one, uh, we're just loosely referring to as the bathroom sink. 
They're going to try to make sure they catch the fallen angels. These are bonds that get downgraded from investment grade to high yield, double Bs. Now, you have a fund, ANGL. We, uh, Morgan Barna and James on my team wrote a note this morning talking about how ANGL is like a glass slipper. It's the perfect fit for what they're after. But it seems like they're going to probably use HYG, which only has half double Bs. Um, and, and maybe that's not a, a perfect fit, but it's a bigger, more liquid one. What's your take on what they should do here in terms of any ETFs they buy? The less, the better, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I understand that half of the credit in our economy goes through bonds and not through the formal banking system and that they that credit was falling apart, that system was falling apart. But really, you know, we know that people are taking risk and making markets around our ETFs to make them function as well as they can for long-term shareholders. You know, it doesn't take a lot of money. Even the, the, the fear of the Fed coming in and knocking your positions out drove prices, I think, uh, last Thursday. So by far the less the better. And if Angel is not part of their buying program, that's a positive as far as I'm concerned. And this isn't the first time, you know, a central bank has gotten involved with ETFs and, you know, look at Japan and uh, and sort of the role the central bank has played there. What, what do you think the Fed has learned from the J Japanese experiment there? Well, I mean, this is the time of radical central bank intervention, right? And where we haven't gone yet, I'm interested in what Eric's analogy is going to be, is when they start buying equities or equity ETFs. Um, I don't know if you've got a room left in the house for that. But, uh, you know, I, I think... I think we're pivoting more off of the 0809 experience, where we realized that um, the government needed to come in to make sure that the, the pipes weren't clogged in terms of the flow of credit, that that was just going to kill the economy even further. And I think they were, they were right at a high level. And I think, uh, I'm not sure how much they're really buying into MMT and the experience of Japan um, and Europe. I, I hope not too much because that really distorted asset prices. And one scenario that I'm not sure people are thinking about too much is what happened after 08, 09 was a big asset melt-up, right? Can you imagine the economy running at 90% of capacity, but asset prices exploding? I think that would have some, some interesting political consequences. The ETF buying, it looks like it might be a couple billion. You know, they could buy, say, up to 26 billion of bond ETFs if they do the 20% max out, but they probably won't. I think the real interesting thing here is I think the flows into LQD and HYG is probably front running just of the underlying bond buying. The other part I would, I would also uh, talk about is that when you talk about QE back in the day, we used to think about how, yes, they were buying bonds, but a lot of that pushed people to buy equities. It, it, it chased them into risk. So in a way, they were involved with that indirectly. Japan just went right, just went right to the equities. And you know, we do look at Bank of Japan, and we wrote a piece uh, last time. They actually became smart beta designers. They actually asked a couple issuers there to design indexes and ETFs that weighted the stocks to capex and who paid workers well. That way, they just weren't buying companies doing buybacks. So they got that into it, and that's not a horrible idea. If you're looking to get the money to the right place, that isn't a, the worst thing, is to make ETFs that hold stocks that reward doing CapEx and uh, you know, paying employees a higher wage. That's sort of what they're, they've gotten into, but that's a whole other level. I don't think the Fed's going to do that anytime soon. Jan, I also wanted to ask you, another elephant in the room is the whole BlackRock 
scenario here where BlackRock is basically the, the Fed's preferred partner in all of this. Um, you're, you're an issuer as well. What's, what's your read of that? Well, I guess, uh, you know, look, they're supremely qualified with their risk systems and their presence in the markets to execute this buying program. But I certainly hope it's, uh, it's well supervised. And as I said before, going back to the elephant, the less they do, the better, especially in the ETF markets where, you know, our ecosystem with market makers and, and everyone is, has risk on. So whatever the Fed does, they're hurting someone, if you want to look at it that way. So I, I think probably I'd rather have more of BlackRock's you know, activity towards the underlying markets where they feel there's breakage rather than messing with ETFs, which, you know, they're, they're big, they're perceived to be liquid, but we're still a fraction of the size of mutual funds. And, you know, we haven't gotten to the whole outflow story of munis and, and other asset classes, but a lot of that was driven by the mutual funds as well. You just mentioned the word muni. Now, during the worst of the sell-off a couple of weeks ago, it drove dislocations in bond ETFs. That means their price was trading below their NAV. To me, that's a measure of the liquidity of the underlying. Otherwise, that would be arbed away. Now, HYD, which is the high-yield muni, that's your fund, it wasn't the biggest discount, but it was close to it. I think at one point, it was 15%, like day after day went as high or low as 27%. Now it's 3% post-Fed kitchen sink, bathroom sink. Walk us through what it's like to be the issuer of a product going through something like that. Well, the, the primary mechanism for closing that gap is the market makers, right? Because theoretically, they have the opportunity to buy the ETF at a price that's below what they can redeem those shares for from the fund at the underlying NAV. So, Job one, two, and three was pretty much to work with the market makers as much as possible. Uh, one way we did that was to speed up our adoption of the ETF rule, which allowed for custom baskets, which is not sort of a full capability that we had. We did that um, you know, kind of very early on into the crisis. And then there was a lot of, uh, as you can imagine, communications with clients because a lot of people didn't understand what was going on. But I really think a lot of this had to do with the wholesaling of munis in general. Right, prices widened, and the market makers were just not comfortable whether they could sell the bonds if they got delivered from the ETF and at what price. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all in one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Okay, so Jan, I also want to talk about gaming. Are you are you a pretty hardcore gamer? Because I mean, you have an uh, an esports ETF ticker ESPO. 
Yeah, no, but I, I can tell you the, uh, the PlayStation in my basement's getting is, is overheating these days. I've got <laughs> uh, I've got three boys at home, and even my oldest, who has a job, is now <laughs> reverted back to eleventh grade. I think. So have I. Uh, we have a Nintendo Switch, and I've gotten addicted to this Turbo Football game. Um, and I've started playing a season. Yeah, it's getting. Um, but anyway, um, I have a. On a, I fell asleep. I took a nap the other day, and I woke up with a, a note on my chest. As my son asking me to log into my computer so he could play Roblox because mommy took the iPad. And <laughs> this is why I tend to cover the video game ETFs a lot because I can see the demand firsthand. If you look at year to date, ESPO is up five percent. The market's down thirteen percent. And during March, when the sell off was the worst, Spy was down twenty four percent. ESPO was down ten percent only. Talk about what's going on there. Is this just people seeing the uh, demand for these uh, uh, stocks when you have a quarantine? Or is this much more of a maybe more future uh, demand kind of buying? Well, I think we we try to offer ETFs that are more longer term trends than just a fad. Um, So, you know, ESPO actually last year, Eric also had really uh, strong outperformance. It's sort of an aggressive growth type of thing. uh, ETF, I would call it, and it's really a work at work at home <laughs> ETF. I mean, it's it's sort of like a Zoom stock, right? It's sort of a direct play on people entertaining themselves at home when they're stuck and they can't move. Um, and the numbers are astonishing. I mean, one of the Asian listed uh, or Singapore based companies has seventy million uh, players a a day logging in from different places in in, in Asia, and that's just Asia. So it's, it's, really, uh, it's really an amazing phenomenon. We think it will continue. I think it could morph. My, my kind of point is this kind of entertainment can morph into more customer interaction. You know, you're playing kind of a static game, but what happens when the audience can affect the players in a game? In real sports, in real sports, people get involved, uh, virtual reality. There's lots of ways this can evolve in a very interesting way, I think. My nine-year-old, would much rather watch somebody play a video game on YouTube than watch uh, sports, real sports with me. So this, in a way, this event just accelerates an existing trend, right? It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily shift the, the demand function, but definitely it'll be here in a bigger way after this. The thing about ESPO is, and all the video game ETFs, I think there's four or five of them at this point, um, the, you know, the returns have been great. If if ESPO was an active manager, it'd be a feature story in Forbes because they're doing so much better than the market, right? But it's got 133 million. To me, this is a little light considering the outperformance in both the up and down market. What do you uh, equate this to? My theory is advisors are hesitant to put something called esports or video games on a client statement, and there's a just a perception barrier because robotics and cybersecurity would clean up if they were post in this kind of performance? I kind of agree with you um, that the asset growth is a little bit less than what I would have hoped for given the performance. But I think it's just um, a conversation people love to have with their clients. So I don't think it's the, this, you know, they're not scared to see it on their statements. Uh, it's a very visible trend. There are people playing this in basements. They're playing it in malls. Um, you know, family members are involved. So I think it's, it's kind of cutting edge in a way. I just don't, you're right, it, it hasn't quite broken through, but I think it, it could very well this year.
so Yana, how do you distinguish your product from the other products that are there? Um, you know, the main thing that we like to say that we have in our thematic ETFs is pure play. So that they're really trying to get a majority of their uh, revenue from the, the, the essence of what we're trying to capture. So we, we do have some bigger companies in there, but we cap them. And then if you look at the portfolio as a whole, and you, you know, it reflects a lot of Asian names, and that's really where there is a very big phenomenon. So, uh, you know, when I think we were the second or so-ish to come out. The, the first one was just video games. This was more uh, some of the gaming and on, online sports aspect of it. So that's, uh, that's really how we would focus our, you know, that's what we did. We follow our regular rules for pure play. Um, okay, let's change this. We'll stick with equities, but I want to change the topic to something that was kind of put on the back burner uh, for the last month, but was on the front burner for like six months prior, which is ESG. Um, it's probably going to come up again. As soon as the market, you know, I've already seen bubbling of like ESG debate coming back. You're interesting to me because you have this ETF that's low carbon energy. Uh, smog is the ticker. You also have a green bond ETF, but you also are the issuer of KOL, which is the coal ETF. And personally, I kind of dig uh, the sort of, uh, look, I'm just trying to serve the people, whatever your take is. But is that by design or by accident? Can you explain serving up those two different sides of the coin? Um, well, they're a little irreconcilable, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. So I'll, I'll grant that up front. Um, you know, KOL was from our first era of ETFs a long time ago when we were just trying to capture pure play. And people hadn't broken up the resources world in ways that made sense. So um, lots of mining things, everything was just thrown together. So we stripped aside agriculture shares like Moo and KOL was one of them. It's, it's barely an ETF anymore. <laughs> I think it's 30 million last I looked. And, you know, we, we've considered, uh, um, you know, thought about what to do with it in light of changing customer demands. But, um, we, you know, we, you, you may know we're also an active money manager. We have actively managed funds. And I think there's been a lot of good thinking about ESG, but we certainly spent a lot of time on it. And I would just point out, I think, I think we're on the same page here, that ESG 1.0 for active managers was making sure that they took more of a 360-degree look at the different kind of risks that their companies could have, environmental and social. Governance was always a part of what they did. And um, I think now putting them into index funds is, is a strain. And there's a lot of trade-offs that need to be made. So we think the pure play on environmental is, uh, is something that we can execute on now. Jan, I also want to just ask you, as we sort of come to an end here, what do you feel like the ETF world isn't talking enough about that, you know, when we get through this moment, we should spend more time talking about? Well, I don't know. It's certainly mentioned, but it's an incredibly concentrated industry. And the big shareholders really own a lot of corporate America. And, uh, you know, that's sort of been talked about without a lot of suggestions. You know, Jack Bogle wrote about it in the last uh, piece he did for the Wall Street Journal before he passed away. So I think that's, uh, that's a big reality. And BlackRock doing the buying for the Treasury and the Fed is just going to be, you know, another, another thing to talk about in that vein. But not much we can do about it, I guess, as an independent issuer, just kind of make it work it through. 
Jan, we got to ask about Bitcoin. I know that's another one of these issues that kind of went to the back burner a little bit. When, when the VIX is up, a lot of this stuff just goes away for a while. But it's going to come back. Bitcoin and whether there'll be an ETF. Uh, Tyler Winklevoss tweeted out on the 10th, April 10th, the launch of the Bitcoin fund on the Toronto Stock Exchange was one of the best closed-end fund launches in Canada's history. So it's a closed-end fund. It's not an ETF, but it's similar. I mean, those aren't too far apart. They're, you know, close in the genre, right? What's your take on, you know, whether we can see a Bitcoin ETF here, uh, whether, you know, the SEC is, you know, softening it all. I know Matt Hogan over at Bitwise has been working overtime to try to get them to, um, you know, change their view on it and look at it as a good thing. There's a couple OTC products in the U.S. that are private trusts, and they trade at you know anything from fifty percent to five hundred percent premiums. And a lot of people say, well, you know, this a Bitcoin ETF would trade at maybe a one percent premium at that, maybe even lower. Why wouldn't they allow it if these other products are out there and you could actually get hurt buying at a high premium and lose money even if Bitcoin went up? Yeah, look, I mean, you know that we've been trying to get our own Bitcoin ETF approved for several years now. There's no real legal or, uh, you know, investment reason to not allow a product like that. And as this episode has reminded us in the markets, you don't need have Bitcoin to have volatility. And I think an ETF would just add to um, the ecosystem for, for uh, you know, Bitcoin ETF would add to the ecosystem of that investment class. I will point out uh, that, you know, gold, this has been a time when central banks are going so nuts that appetite for gold and, and Bitcoin goes up. And actually the correlation between Bitcoin and gold bullion has gone from about zero uh, before this year to something like a 0.5 correlation this year, which is actually super interesting. I would say so far, both have been, uh, you know, working independently of the overall markets, but they haven't broken through. And what's amazing is just investor appetite in the traditional world is, pr I think, not as big for Bitcoin as people might imagine. I could be wrong, but I don't think it's an, necessarily an instant billion dollar ETF, Eric. Yeah, and I don't think it's going to take over uh, middle America with grandmas losing all. The I, I think people will see Bitcoin on the name and it will track the people who seek it out. I, yeah, I see it maybe the whole category, a couple billion. This is me using the ones in Sweden and Switzerland. They haven't exactly lit the world on fire and all of Europe gets there and, and wealthy people here could buy them. So, um, yeah, I'm with you. I, I think it would find the right audience. People who, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm very, I, I think it's... ETFs give something the best possible shot at a good deal because of that arbitrage mechanism, which you don't get in the OTC product or a closed-end fund. 100% agree. Jan, do you have a, would you like to leave our listeners with a closing thought today? Um, it's kind of a macro uh, thought, if you don't mind. Um, you know, what I said about a month ago, because we do quarterly investment outlooks, sort of in the spirit of this podcast, which is, what do I kind of see as a CEO that you might not as a portfolio manager or, or, or strategist and stuff like that? And I said, listen, we're entering a period of heightened uncertainty and markets hate uncertainty. So kind of watch out. And I, th I think that period of heightened uncertainty, because there's always uncertainty, is, is going away. Um, it's not disappeared, but things are starting to become more visible. It may not be great news, like the go back to work stats in China I saw last night are kind of depressing, but uh, as visibility 
appears, and despite what the Fed did, you know, I think it's time for investors to kind of start buying. Don't, don't buy everything, but you, you like some uncertainty when you're buying. So um, I think we're, we've, we're finishing phase one of this era, I would say. Jan Van Eck, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Jan at Jan Van Eck with the number three at the end. You can also follow Van Eck's podcast, Trends with Benefits. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.